We addressed the topic of training evaluation a few times back in 2019, didn't we? Today, we're going to address it again. Why? Well, as training business owners, we need to be constantly aware of client return on investment. We need to have their ROI at the forefront of our minds at all times. Isn't that true? Is this training program, is this class, is this workshop you're building, you're selling, is it contributing to your customer's business objectives? How can you measure it? How can you prove it works? And how can you use this proof to generate even more business for you? Great questions. And to guide us today, we have none other than Jack and Patty Phillips together, founders of the internationally admired ROI or Return on Investment Institute on the show. This is episode 69 of the Training Business Podcast. And welcome to the trainingbusiness.com podcast. Every week, we bring you exciting news and interviews with training business experts and training business entrepreneurs from around the world. Thanks for tuning into today's episode. Here's your host, Mark Garrett Hayes. Hey, welcome to the show. My name is Mark Garrett Hayes, and this is another episode of the Training Business Podcast. And the goal of this episode and every episode last year, the year before, and the year we're in right now, 2020. It's the same. It's to help you to start to grow and to scale your training business. So if you're here because you own or are starting a training business, you're looking to make money from the world of helping people to be the very best they can be, this is the show for you. Now, before we begin today's episode, I alluded before the music to the fact that we've addressed the topic of training evaluation a couple of times in the last couple of months. Do you recall the interviews with Wendy Kirkpatrick, episode 50, Kevin M. Yates, Episode 7, and Katie Caselli, Episode 6. What do they all have in common? Yeah, training evaluation. Now, classically, most training evaluation or learning evaluation is user-centric. Did the learner enjoy the program? Did the program meet their expectations, etc.? But what about the business-centric evaluation, what we call Level 5 evaluation? Did the business see a measurable change in behavior? Going further still, has the business seen that behavior result in greater profits or cost savings as a direct result of your training intervention? That's a tough question and one that many of us may not wish to answer if we can't answer it. It's a difficult conversation to have sometimes. But when you as a training business owner can prove that your programs lead to the things that businesses really want, your programs will be far easier to sell because the results will speak for themselves. Make sense? And today's guests are Jack and Patty Phillips, who together started the ROI Institute in 1992. And the mission of the ROI Institute is to help organizations to evaluate the success of projects and programs. And today, the ROI Institute operates in over 70 countries, together with a team of more than 100 consultants. Jack, Patty, thank you for your time today. Thank you for coming to the show. Well, thank you for inviting us. Thank you, Mark. So um, let's start with with uh, who you are, um, what you're known for, and why it's important. Well, first, uh, we're a team. It's been, we've been running the ROI Institute now for over 25 years. Uh, we help organizations see the value of what they do and show the value of what they do. Uh, measuring their success, whether it's individual programs, projects, departments, or even companies. Mm. Um, and so we started off working when the, 
in the learning and development space. Our first study was in that space in the 70s. Um, we started working with uh, a process that, um, that we use now. We refined it much over the period of years. 1983, we wrote the first book on training evaluation. Uh, that's now over 30 years ago. That We're now in the fourth edition of that book, so it's still around. Mm-hmm. Um, since then, we've written uh, almost 100 books that support this process in so many different areas beyond learning and development. Still, uh, learning and development evaluation is um, a big part of what we do. It's probably 30% of our revenue mm-hmm. uh, globally. We we started off working in the USA in the 70s and 80s, but um, took it global in the 90s. And we now work, most of our work is uh, outside the USA, uh, 70 countries through partners. Um, and the the methodology just continues to grow, and we've kept refining it over a period of time. It is now the most used evaluation system in the world. Uh, in contrast, Kirkpatrick wrote his first book in um, 1994, 11 years after we wrote the first uh, evaluation. This this is Don Kirkpatrick, the uh, creator of the, the four-step learning evaluation model. Okay. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Don was a friend of ours, and we I think we inspired him to actually write that book. Um, and so... He's obviously passed now, um, uh, but he was a very good gentleman, and we enjoyed working with him. Uh, so that's a bit of history. So, Patty, you want to add to that? Well, Mark, I, I became involved in this process um, in the mid '90s after a, a corporate career, and I don't I come outside the HR and learning and development space. I'm on the business side, so I bring to it a lens, the same. Um, lens that other business managers and leaders have looking at it from how does learning and how do HR programs and projects really serve my needs. And so when I got involved with the process, it just made sense to me because it talked about measures not around the activity of learning and training programs, but focused on measures of output, quality, cost, and time, um, tying these investments and in people to measures that matter to the business unit. So one reason I love this process and fell in love with the process back in the 90s is because, one, it was grounded in good research. Um, it brought in good economic theory, um, but it also spoke to the business manager, to the business leader in terms that mattered. So not just about what do people know um, or what people do, but more about the so what. Mm-hmm. How does learning lead to improvement in productivity and quality improvement and time savings? So again, those measures that really matter to me as a business leader. Is that what contributed to the the name of the organization or the decision to call it the ROI Institute? Right. Yes. Um, because it's talking about ultimately ROI, meaning the actual ROI. So not mm. just an acronym or a play on words. We actually get to the financial economic metric. So to what degree do you think trainers, uh, c- coming back to my world, to the world of my listeners, to what degree are trainers, coaches, measuring their own material and programs? So we we see some data, and it varies with who 
uh, who's collecting the data, of course, and it varies with the country. But um, we think that if we just take these by levels uh, for reaction, of course, it's close to 100% of programs are measured at that level. Um, and then for learning, uh, we think it's probably around 80, 90% of measured learning. And then when you get to what they do with what they've learned, which is what we call application, applying that, that number drops off. We think it's probably around 10 to 20%. That needs to be more. And then when you look at the consequence that Patty was just describing, that we call that impact. That's mm -hmm. the consequence of application, which is that's where you finally get or you begin to get the um, executive's interest. Uh, we think it's probably around uh, two to three percent at that level, maybe maybe five percent. Again, this can vary with the country. Mm -hmm. um, that that ought to be closer to ten to twenty percent, and then ROI. ROI, you know, when you look at Training Magazine's numbers, that's uh, one organization we work with. You know, they think it's quite high, around thirty forty percent. Uh, of the training programs are measured at that level. We don't think it's that high. Um, so it's probably around 5% or less of programs. I, it's probably even closer to 1% to 2%. Hmm. So it's very rare. We think that ought to be a little bit more, of, uh, I should say a good bit more, around 5 to 10%. So there's a reluctance to measure at the impact and ROI uh, from the learning function. Yet, uh, studies have continued to show that that's the number one and number two measure from the executives. Those who give the budget, who fund the budget, who support them, really want to see the business consequence and the and the ROI. So it's not where it needs to be. Patty, why don't you add to that? Well, just to your point, there's still a reluctance. And typically what we hear is measuring impact is hard. And so that's the excuse for not doing it, which is not an excuse for doing it. I mean, yeah. I mean, I think I'm thinking of colleagues, people of in my network, people who are trainers. Um, I can honestly say most of the time, the only conversations we might have about evaluation in terms of how they would apply it would be this distribution of uh, happy sheets where people give some kind of feedback via the LMS, or some kind of other online platform or simply by giving some feedback verbally. But the, the thing is, as you've alluded to, the person who actually often pays for the training isn't necessarily HR. It's someone who wants to feel a measurable, concrete, tangible business impact in their business unit once those people return from training. So I'm often thinking, you know, what actually stops people from having that kind of conversation with a person who has the purse strings. And my answer to that, my belief, is that people don't trust themselves to have a business-level conversation where they can articulate value using the language and referring to the requirements of the person who actually wants to see a return on investment. Now, that's a, that's a great point, lack of confidence to have that conversation. And that lack of confidence often comes because they don't get the business. Um, too often, and it, it's not just training, it's most functions, too often people stay in their own space mm. and they don't venture off. And so they don't understand the business. Um, sometimes they feel like they should understand it. So they hate to ask the question because then that exposes them. Um, 
so they don't ask the question. And and then often, you know, the whole thing is about making it easy on them. They work from the LMS because that's easy for them. And so by making measurement easy for them, they are also making it easy for decision makers to cut their budgets. And you don't want to do that. You want to make it easy for decision makers and funders to increase budgets. You want to make it easy for that manager mm-hmm. who heads up the market planning and research function, as I did, to see value in what you do. But if all you're doing is happy sheets and knowledge acquisitions and testing, you're making it easy for people like I once was to say, you know, I can do something better. I can find a better solution than what they're offering because all they're doing is telling me how much their participants like that program. And I don't care what they like. I don't even care what they know. I want to know that they are doing their jobs differently and doing them so much so that it is improving my measures of output quality cost and time. So by making it easy to measure, they're making it easy to have funding slashed, programs cut, But more than that, making it easy for those business measures to discount the value that learning and development brings to the organization. Yeah. So let's just say that um, I want to I want to go into a meeting now. I've got my own answers to this, but I'd like to hear what you think. Let's say I want to go into a meeting right now, confident, uh, asking a particular set of questions, which by virtue of asking those questions, helps that person to see me in a different light. I'm not just someone who's rolling up with a generic set of programs off the shelf. I'm genuinely interested, saying the right things, asking the right questions. And that person now feels, you know what, this person isn't just a trainer, um, some learning and development consultant. They sound like they get uh, my business. And on that basis, I now am willing to share more uh, about my requirements with them. What kinds of, not trip words, but what kinds of questions or uh, subjects with your business hat on, Patty, would someone need to raise across their side of the table so you're convinced this person's worth sharing more information with and, and perhaps giving them the business? I think step one is going knowing a little bit about what the business is of the person that you're speaking to. But asking questions like, you know, what opportunities are there for your function to either make money, save money, avoid costs. You know, what are the key business measures in your function that need improvement? What are you observing that needs to change that if you changed it could help improve those measures? If they would go in with questions like that, I think that someone would actually sit up and listen to them. But too much of the time they go in, don't you need leadership development? Or we have these programs in place and we'd like for you to send your people. I mean, they need to go in thinking at a higher level. It's not about what people need to know. It's not even about what people need to do. It's what are the consequences of what people do? What needs to change at this higher level? Looking at your metrics, you know, what are the measures that need to improve? What are you observing? What are you seeing? Why do you think that's happening? And what else is going on that we can help you address? And sometimes it's not even a learning solution. So if learning and development professionals go into the conversation as that performance consultant, not a training deliverer, but a performance consultant, I am here to partner with you. If they would go into it from that perspective, those clients would sit up and and pay attention because now we can have a conversation. 
just, just getting them to keep talking about the business. What's the issue in the business? Our friends in leadership development, uh, particularly some of the smaller firms, uh, have, have realized that you don't, they're not successful by just going into senior executives and saying, hey, we've got great leadership development here, great competencies, we'd like to try it with your team. They go in asking about business issues. You know, what's not doing well? What needs to improve? What great opportunities out there that you could take advantage of? And they, they get clarification around that and then say, you think if you had better leaders who could actually lead a team and, and drive that measure, is that possible? And they usually get some confirmation there. And then they just keep working that process. But it starts with the end in mind. And that's why you need this. And why is a business measure these days? We had when um, Mark, when we when I was in corporate, which was forever ago, right? The late eighties, early eighties to the early nineties. But we had a, an executive, not in learning, it was executive over marketing, and we just would run into issues with L and D a lot. And so we decided to have a business of the business program and anyone was invited it was after hours so five o'clock we would gather together in one of the training rooms and the folks from the plants or the business they would come and they would present or talk it wouldn't be necessary formal presentation but they would have these conversations about the business and it was brilliant it was so simple and so brilliant and um, that's the kind of thing that need, that L and D needs to be driving, right? They need to be having these business of the business conversations. Let's hear from the people we serve. Get them together and use that informal time as an opportunity for learning and development to learn about the business, so they can be more comfortable having that one-on-one conversation. Yeah, and I, I would agree with that. And I think that um, any of the coaching calls I've had with people in the past who are starting off in training. Um, I'm encouraging them to forget the forget the solution for a moment. Let let's just say, you know, why why does someone need you? Why does someone need you right now? Why would someone reach into their checkbook or or credit card or account and and fork out money and put it in your account? What what is it that you're doing to add value? And I've often seen people or heard a kind of a pause in their voice because they're it's kind of scary, isn't it? You're 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 now asking me uh, to ask questions to which I don't know the answer. And even if I hear the answer, I'm not sure I recognize the value in that answer. So um, the people that I feel um, when I've coached them that have had the most progress or made the most progress are those who get comfortable by understanding the business of the prospect. What is it they do? Whom do they serve? What are the, um, the value points in their product or service offering? And what can you do to even move the dial slightly? So we're not looking to just deliver training for the sake of training. We're looking to increase competency, increase productivity, and ultimately profitability. So to, in my mind, I'm asking myself now, looking at the Phillips methodology, how, do you, how does one isolate the things that are actually determinants of organizational impact? Okay, so um, that's what we probably focus on so much. And we probably made our reputation around that sorting out the effects of what we do from other influences. But let me back up for a minute. It starts, just think about the business connection, the business alignment. So the first step in our model is start with why, and that's a clear business need. So if we have that clear business need developed, that's our beginning point. Uh, 
That's initial alignment. And then we set an objective at the impact level. That's our fourth level. So the person involved would have an impact, would have an objective, a very smart objective around that business need. So clearly, you say, look, I'm, I'm driving our productivity or our call volume in the call center. You know, at what you've got that clear measure and you're going to drive it by X amount by a certain time. So that gets that keeps the focus on that business measure throughout the program. But at the end, when it's all when we've taught them, they've learned, they've applied, and as an the impact is there. So that's a fact now in the system. So we start with that fact and we sort out the effects of what our learning has done on that. What effects did we have on that from other influences? Now there's a lot of pro- approaches on that. Just quickly. Uh, we all, we always look for the experimental versus control group opportunity. That is, can we train some people who are in this role and compare them to people who are also in this role but not get the training? And that's the control group. Now, about a third of our studies actually are able to do that. Uh, so that that's very credible. Very, if the groups are matched quite well, that's def- very defensible. But then we sometimes have to look at other methods like modeling or a simple trend line analysis. This would be taking the business measure like productivity or, or quality measure or time measure and say, okay, what was it before the program? Um, let's look at this for several months maybe. And let's, let's try to trend that in the future after the program. So we, we'd use Microsoft Excel to do a simple trend Say so this is where the measure would be if we didn't uh, have our program, perhaps. And now we look at the actual, so we have improvement. Now we ask a couple of conditions there to make sure we can claim that, that amount. One condition would be, you know, what's causing this trend pre-program? Can we can we see that same of uh, influence there in the post period? If we validate that. Then we ask, did anything else occur in our process besides our program? If the answer is no, uh, then we can use that difference there as our impact. About almost a third of our studies are actually using that simple technique. Now, uh, what happens that puzzles other people but shouldn't necessarily is what do you do then? Well, we use estimates from the most credible source. And that's often the participant. You see, if we have a fact, a measure has changed. And we got the person who's driven that fact in a focus group or an interview or even collecting data from the questionnaire. We collect, we collect data from them. We're asking them, so what caused this fact besides this program? And we get them to talk about it. And then we say, okay, what? let's sort this out. What percent now goes to this this particular uh, measure, the, the impact, the fact this, that it's changed. And they give us a percentage. Now, that we call that uh, participant's estimate. Now, because that is an estimate, we know it has error. And so we have one of our standards is to adjust for the error in estimates. So we actually ask another question, what's your confidence in this on a scale of 0 to 100%. And we use this as an error adjustment. If they, if it was certainty, that's there's no error in that estimate, that allocation, which wouldn't be. But if they said the hundred, 
certainty, that'd be 100% confident. If they're 80% confident, it's reflecting 20% error. So we, we basically adjust the number by taking the 20% out, which is the same as multiplying by 80. Now, I'm getting in the weeds now, but you can see we work very hard to make sure estimates are accurate. And we compare that with research that we've done with like experimental versus control group and trend line and modeling of uh, mathematical modeling. And we find that estimates are quite conservative. They're actually less than those other numbers. So our contribution to the literature probably in the last two decades is to do an, enough analysis around sorting out the effects of the hard-to-sort-out situations, but using estimates from the most credible people taken in an unbiased, non-threatening way and adjusted for error, we find that that, that is accurate. That is conservative. There's wisdom in the crowds. So we're really winning people over. We've had over 5,000 people have become certified ROI professionals. And to do that, to become that, get that designation, they had to conduct a study and sort out the effects of their program on this, that uh, data, data. So it can be done, and it is being done. So we always do it by standard, by process, always. If you don't do it, you have no credibility with your executives because they know their major other influences out there. So that's a long answer to your short question, but Patty, you want to add something to that? Well, I think people push back on it because they're looking for absolutes. And in measurement of any type, there are none. The only time we're absolutely certain is when we're adding one plus one. That's going to equal two unless mm. we want to be incorrect. Everything else, there's inherent subjectivity. The key is in managing the subjectivity and being able to explain exactly what you're doing, how you're doing it, and why you're doing it that way and setting it up so it can be replicated in the future. And people are uncomfortable with that. They're looking for the absolute answer, and there's not one. So what are you going to do about that, given there's never going to be an absolute answer when it comes to measurement, and especially this thing with isolation? I mean, people say, well, you shouldn't isolate learning and development. It's part of everything. Well, not when they're cutting your budget. They've just isolated it. So we've got to find a way to do it. Now, experimental design has is, is always been around. It has always been used in L&D, just not to a large extent. We're seeing an uptick in it because we are in this era of experimentation, right? So innovation is a big part of the conversation. And if you innovate, you are experimenting. So we're seeing an uptick in it, which is good because that's your gold standard. But even with experimental design, there are misses. You're not going to match your groups exactly. You're going to miss some factors that could possibly have an influence. But you have to have a way to mitigate that or mitigate the risk with that, you know, manage it. Um, so we're seeing an uptick with that. But in the end, we've, we've got to be able to do it some way. If it's not experimental design, if it's not using, you know, trend line analysis and our modeling techniques, What's the next thing? What's the worst case, but the, the last resort, I guess? And that is go ask someone. Ask the people who know best about that measure, who know best about the program, the measure, and the other factors. Go ask them, but ask them in such a way that there's a process that can back you up. So you have a process and you have standards. With a process and standards, you have a reason for doing what you're doing, and then you can replicate it. And that gives you some reliability in what you're 
what you're reporting. Okay, let me be a devil's advocate here for a moment. Um, so someone listening to this might be, well, they more than likely are, in my experience, uh, people who run a solo operation. They might be two or three people, uh, sometimes bigger. But for the the ordinary trainer out there, um, is this practical for someone to to apply to every kind of training project? Or is there a kind of a threshold or a kind of a time when someone might say, you know what, uh, this is cut and dry. Someone's looking for X program. I'm going to deliver this and this is me out of here. I don't need to go through the cost analysis and some kind of uh, statistical modeling to uh, work X, Y, Z out because it's not really worth it given that a fact it's only a, you know, a $5,000 program. Whereas if it's something like $25,000 or $125,000 program, I could see myself uh, wading into the, the maths and, and the, the, the bar charts and all that kind of thing. So it's a matter of resources. Right. You're, you're right. We, if you tried to do ROI on every program, you'd go crazy. Yeah. Uh, the, you, you'd have paralysis by analysis. Absolutely. So you've got to be very careful and very selective. Our, our prescription, and it comes from our actual practice and what's worked with a lot of executives and a lot of different functions, but our prescription is about 5 to 10% of your programs each year are good candidates for ROI. And, and that's about um, 10 to 20% uh, at the impact level. See, some stop at impact and don't go to ROI, and then some are pushed on the ROI. So let's take the low end of that. If you can usually get a function to 10% of our programs at the impact level, then you've got success. That success, uh, if I get, to, let's just put that in perspective. If I have 10 programs that I'm offering, that means that probably one of those you're going to evaluate at impact level. Uh, and that's it. Uh, you might take uh, that one to the ROI level. Um, 5% of, of 10 is only half of a program. So you probably have one program every other year that you push up to the ROI level using those statistics. Mm-hmm. Now, so we have to be careful. And from an executive perspective, it's really the programs that are that are expensive, the programs that are uh, not clear in their minds how it adds value, uh, programs that are important to the organization, uh, pro- those kind of programs attract their interest. An executive doesn't need to see ROI of teaching a person how to do their job or to be in compliance with the regulation or for an, or one hour e-learning program about a new policy. Uh, they don't need that. They don't want that. Um, but what they do need is that when you're sending a group of managers to a, a three day program and every, every manager is going to this and it's on empowerment, it's on leadership, it's mm-hmm. on communications, it's on team building. See those kind of soft things they can't see so clearly. So that's the kind of program that you need to push to that level. And that's what you can do. Mm-hmm. Give an example. We have a family member who's a manager of a sorting facility for UPS. He has he's a manager who has supervisors working for him. Uh, he he recently went to a supervisor training program, and UPS has been one of our clients for some time now. And the the his his goals for going to that program was to work on his four measurement categories, and he had to select what he needed to improve. Uh, one measure is on the volume of sorting going through the facility. 
another is the rejects that they have uh, in this facility. Another is the time it takes to get a package to that facility. And another one is the cost of running that facility. So those are major categories of output, quality, cost, and time. So he had to select one or two measures that he would improve with this program. And at the end, he would work on that and see that measure change or not. If it changed, he was then asked, so what else could have caused this? And, of course, there's a lot of other factors that's going to affect that measure. So he puts that in there. And then what percent goes to this program? And he gives a percent. And then he says, what is your confidence in that allocation on a scale of zero to 100%? And he gives that. So what, what that has done is connect leadership development to his performance. And that's what UPS does, and they do it well. They've been a user of this methodology for 20 years. So it, see, it, you just want to be careful and select those pro programs that are important to the organization and attract executive attention. That's usually a small number. Let me get Patty to add to that. Well, there's not much more to add than, than you're right. I mean, there's cost-benefit considerations and everything that we do. And if a, if a trainer or a coach goes into a situation and it's that cut and dry, what the problem is, what the solution is, and there's not a very large investment or not much risk to investing in the wrong investment, then it's probably it's not probably not worth it to go there. Um, we're really talking about the big programs that are driving the business. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I think there is a market, obviously, for stuff off the shelf, but I'm I often tell people, trainers, look, if you, if you want to play in the big league and you want to solve bigger problems, you've got to be able to prove that you can solve those bigger problems. So you don't have to be you know, a PhD in some kind of uh, statistical analysis, but you should be comfortable um, understanding their world from their perspective, using their language. So often it's enough just to, to be able to say what actually is really important here. What is it that someone wants to get? And if someone could say at the end of my program, well, people are now able to do why, uh, whatever that is, um, can you perhaps articulate why that's worth investing in your program, given that your program should actually solve that problem? So the the, the tip I would give people is before you, you kind of get into the nitty gritty and picking too many variables, some of which cannot be measured uh, really without a, a lot of work and a lot of scientific knowledge. But what are the kind of fundamentals that someone could actually say concretely, look, if we do these things this way, you can expect to see return on investment here. If you do things this way, um, it's less less measurable, um, but it's it's worth including as well. So if we say, if there were three things, just three things that someone could and should as a training consultant, uh, start to get to grips with in terms of being able to prove value in, in measuring uh, delivery or return on investment, what would those two or three things be from your perspective? Um, it's a hard one, maybe. I don't know. It's a hard question to answer. Well, no, 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 it's easy. See, I think this works extremely well for a solo trainer, as you suggest. I'd want to make sure I clearly define a business measure that we want to improve with this program. Very, very precise and how much uh, would be our goal to try to do that? And second, I want to make sure that what I'm going to do with my program can actually move that needle. Is this essentially val validating that it's the right solution? And I'd want to expect that 
I'm going to expect success now. That's the third step in our model. And that's where we want to have that clear goal in front of us at all time. And, and as a trainer, I want it in front of me all the time so that I keep working on that. And if we're a larger organization, we had a designer or developer involved, I'd want to make sure that, that person is doing their share to, to get to that success. See, what we've done is redefine the success of learning from the fact that you've learned something to the fact that it's had an impact. And from an executive standpoint, they'll tell you quickly that the success of learning and a learning center in a company is to drive business value, business. And it's so difficult for learners and trainers to think, but my all I can control is what they've learned. And But the person who's given us the budget says, but unfortunately, I'm giving you the money for this. You're getting the money. For <laughs> so I'm yeah. holding you accountable for this. So so you can influence that. You can design for it. You can make it happen. And that's what you got to do. And you report it and you get through. And I think, too, Mark, people just, you know, trainers and coaches going, coaches going into these interventions, just they need to have this mindset Um for curiosity, just go into it curious about the business. Don't go into the initial conversation with these with the solution in hand. You don't have to have the answers. You go into that engagement with questions. And as Jack said, the, the first yeah. question is why. You know, why am I? You know, why am I here? What's your problem? What's your opportunity? That's a great point because I've I've asked people in the past. You know, someone starting off uh, a training business recently. Uh, in Pennsylvania. And I said, you know, what kinds of business level conversations do you have? What kinds of people do you find you can connect with inside the organization? And they said to me, actually, I haven't thought of that. Okay. So whom do you typically sell to? Well, HR. Okay. Are there any drawbacks with that? Um, well, sometimes I find I can't get past HR because they're looking to list or delist me according to particular criteria over which I have no control. Okay. So on that basis, what kind of people could you connect with and have a business conversation with them. And they say, they say very invariably, I haven't thought of that. I haven't actually uh, looked in LinkedIn and said, who's the person who's more than likely going to benefit, benefit from this? And what's it like to be in their shoes? What kind of value uh, proposition would actually speak their language? And something else I find that many trainers don't do is um, they don't think about the next step. So if, if all we're doing as trainers is having this kind of short-term view, which is, I'm going to sell this program, deliver it, and that's me done. You're kind of leaving money on the table because maybe there are other parts of the organization that could benefit from your program. And if you do it well and provide value in one business unit, um, that's if the organization has multiple business units, you might find others then say, you know what, I'd like some of that too. Um, and the other thing I would say is that if we're able to you know, get our courage together and say, look, tell you what, I'm going to help embed this program um, I, I expect to see me back in 30 days and then in 60 days we'll do this and in 90 days we'll do this because so many trainers are just coming in, delivering stuff, going out the door and no one hears from them again. So is there a way where you as a trainer can actually get your courage together and say, you know what, I'm going to be around for this. I'm going to help embed this training through this process. So what would that process do you think look like if a trainer could uh, embed something properly to deliver return on investment. Just, just curious. Well, first, uh, you, you raise a good point because their access point is usually the HR manager or sometimes the L&D manager. And 
And I always look at that as the um, not the true client. And so uh, sometimes we are dismissed or we are applauded because of our relationship with the HR person. But we want to raise the issue. Let's suppose that they give us a go to do a project. And, and we want access to the ultimate client. That's a person who really is paying for this. And and sometimes we want to raise that issue of let's, let's connect this to the business need. Let's define that business measure and make sure that what we're offering is the right solution. Now, sometimes that HR person says, no, 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 let's don't do that. Um, let's just go with what you got. But the, the problem is we miss that opportunity to ever come back again because uh, if we don't know the business needs, so we design around learning objectives only, and and they come to our program and they learn and they probably, there's a good chance they don't use it and they don't see the impact. And so they, they say, this is bad training. Uh, so delist this trainer. So it's, it's for your own uh, sustainability is to get to the ultimate decision maker. The reason you're blocked by the HR person is that the HR person is sticking his neck or her neck out in hiring you and that they don't want to see the value sometimes because they're afraid if not delivering the value, it reflects on them as well. So I, I want to push that meeting. I want to push that conversation. I want to, I want to make sure that person is happy. And one way to make them happy is to have that impact clearly defined. I've got to tell you something that just happened to us just recently in a major telecom evaluation of a sales training program. We were asked to come in, evaluate this program. It's been conducted already for two weeks. Over a thousand people have been through this. And and now we're asked to show the ROI at the request of the head of sales and marketing. So I, I asked for a meeting with the head of sales and marketing. And I said, so what was you, as we go for this evaluation, what was you thinking would be the impact of this program. And he thought for a little bit. He says, well, I'd like for them to increase their sales with their existing customers. I said, how much do you think is possible with this program? He said, I think it's at least 10%. And and what time frame do you think they could get there? And he said, well, this should be something they should apply quickly. Uh, let's say, you know, six months, four months, somewhere along. I said, so increase sales with existing customer by 10%. In six months, he said, "Yes, that's good." Then I looked at the L and D people. I said, "Did you operate under that goal?" And they said, "No, that's the first time we've heard that." <laughs> but yet, it's been conducted. I said, "There's a good chance that you won't have a good response here, and, and a good." But and I said, "Unfortunately, those objectives are in the minds of some people asking for it, but they, we don't pull them out." Um, it, that we should pull them out, and that becomes a basis for our program, designing for that, so that you make sure you have that. Yeah, and I also tell you know people in the business who are new to the business, look, don't be afraid of pushing back. If you if you think one of those uh, measurements or those um, requirements is something you cannot deliver on, say it, and if they insist upon it, uh, it's perhaps best to walk away rather than deliver a program under false pretense or promises you can't possibly meet because that will just damage your brand, right? That's right. And getting clear on why that's the requirement. 
No, it's all about the why. Why is that a requirement? If trainers and coaches and others would go into interventions or into agreements um, with clients, with clarity around, you know, what exactly is it that people need to know? What exactly is it that you want people to do with what they know? And why exactly is it you want them to do it? And what is the value of their doing it? If they can go in with crystal clear clarity around those answers, they'll achieve greater success with the program and greater results, more positive results in the end. But all too often, as you described earlier, is a very transactional relationship. And transaction is nothing but activity. Activity equals cost, cost get cut. Yeah. Is that we need to think in terms of investments and results. Yeah. So in summary, I think that's a great um discussion we've had, then that's the importance of putting on your business hat as a trainer um, and listening to what um, Jack and Patty have pointed out, that, that ultimately it's a business. Training is a business. People don't just invest money for the sake of, of compliance or filling in a checklist or some kind of um, organizational requirement. They actually want you as a trainer, as a coach, to increase someone's productivity, their performance in some way. So you have to understand what those measurements are and have some kind of credible process for measuring that. So that's something we can't perhaps go into today, perhaps on a future episode of the show, Jack and Patty. But uh, thank you so much for your time this morning. I think it's wonderful that uh, someone out there is taking return on investment in training, learning and development seriously, and your company helps people to to do that. And that's something I think I might uh, allude to finally, which is the resources that you have. Uh, The Institute also helps people to understand the business or the process of measuring uh, organizational impact. So where can people find you uh, and connect with you online? They can certainly go to the website, roiinstitute.net. We are also on LinkedIn. Both Jack and I have accounts and um, our LinkedIn profiles as does the company. And we are on Twitter. The handle is ROI underscore institute. So yeah, we'd love for people to connect with us and take advantage of some of the resources that we have. And you can reach out directly to us, uh, Jack at roinstitute.net or petitroainstitute.net. And we've got a team of people who can help, but we're willing to help as well. Wonderful. Jack and Patty, thank you so much for being our guests today on the show. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Mark. Take care. Sincere thanks to you, Patty and Jack, for your time today, for speaking to us live from the States, and for insight into the work of the ROI Institute. And thanks to you, of course, our listeners, for tuning in again this week for another episode of the Training Business Podcast. Thank you from me for all your support, your episode suggestions, and positive feedback so far. And this is one of the early episodes in 2020, so many great episodes to come. That said, I do all the time welcome suggestions as to the kinds of guests you'd like on the show and the kinds of topics you'd like us to address on the show. Anything that helps you to perform better, to uh, learn quicker, to grow your business, and to generate the kinds of customers that you want to have, doing your best work with them, that's the kind of thing I'd love to hear about from you. So please keep your suggestions coming. You can check out the podcast, as always, on Apple Podcasts, on Stitcher and Spotify, and of course on other platforms where the episodes turn up on the web. Uh, We're on Twitter, we're on Facebook and Instagram, so please check us out, join the conversation. We'd love to hear from you, your suggestions and your questions. So see you next week for episode 70, when I'll be speaking with Marshall Goldsmith, who's probably the best-known executive coach in the world today. See you then. Bye-bye. 
Thanks once more for listening to this episode of the trainingbusiness.com podcast. Go to trainingbusiness.com and subscribe right now to be notified of great competitions, upcoming VIP episodes, and amazing special offers to help you succeed in your training business. See you next time.